You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live and another in our series on protecting public safety. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. The brutal death of a 29-year-old black man, Tyree Nichols, at the hands of Memphis police officers has renewed questions around police accountability, police training, and use of force policies. Joining me now is the third ranking official at the Department of Justice, Vinita Gupta, Associate Attorney General of the United States. Vinita, welcome back to Washington Post Live. Good to be here with you, Jonathan. So when you and I spoke last year uh, about policing in America, you said that when you joined DOJ in 2014, it seemed like every week there was a new viral video of an officer involved shooting or police-related violence. It's now 2023. Why are these things still happening? Look, I think this is the question all of us need to be asking ourselves, but maybe more importantly, every police chief in America needs to be asking him or herself and not just asking the question, but having real conversations with their command staff, their rank and file. It won't be good to have this the conversation be, oh, this could never happen here in my department. These are issues of culture in police departments. What is the culture of policing in any specific department? What's the training? We know that after George Floyd's murder, there are a lot of police departments, uh, as well as law enforcement agencies across the federal government, including even the Justice Department, that took a look at our use of force policies and in many instances updated them to include things like the duty to intervene, the duty to render medical aid, uh, the duty to de-escalate, uh, and, but we also know, and I've said this before, as have others, that culture eats policy for lunch. And at the end of the day, these things will keep happening so long as there isn't a sufficient look at kind of the, the depth of policing culture in any particular department and whether training is actually following suit to ensure that all communities are safe and that the police can operate uh, and protect public safety in their communities. Because we know that Law enforcement cannot fight violent crime and can't keep communities safe without police community trust. You know, I want to pick up on uh, your you're talking about culture, culture in police departments, and this phrasing that um, you just mentioned, culture eats policy for lunch. And I've been focused on the culture of law enforcement ever since folks focused in on, particularly folks on the on the right, focused in on the fact that the five police officers who beat Tyree Nichols and who eventually died as a result of those beatings were black. They were African-American. And so to my mind, that just points out that the culture of law enforcement is what we really should be talking about. So how can we, how can you at DOJ turn the tables so that it's policy that eats culture for lunch? So I think, look, I, I, uh, we have all been promoting, and I think that there's really been a spotlight on the importance of having law enforcement police officers that will reflect the communities that they serve since uh, Michael Brown's death in Ferguson. Uh, and it is important. In fact, I also think we have to vastly increase the number of women in law enforcement because I think that will have a very important impact on culture. But that said, we also know and have never claimed that diversity in police agencies is a panacea. It has, there has to be policies and training 
Uh, there has to be supervision and accountability where the, when there's uh, when there's misconduct. And this is part. There is no silver bullet for addressing culture, but it's got to start with really tough conversations among the chief, the command staff, and the rank and file about these very questions. And ultimately, the Justice Department. You know, we have a lot of levers. We work very closely with our state and local law enforcement partners. And I want to say one thing that I really noted, and I don't think we should sweep under the rug, because when people say, oh, there's been no progress made, I don't I don't buy that. There has been a lot of progress made. I've been in doing this work for a very long time. And I was really, truly heartened, though it shouldn't have happened, that there was almost uniform condemnation very swiftly of what happened to Tyree Nichols in Memphis uh, by law enforcement groups and law enforcement leaders. Uh, and I don't take that for granted, and I don't think the public should either, and that was important. But that the Justice Department, we have a lot of different tools. I think the tool that uh, often is focused on is the Civil Rights Division's Pattern or Practice Authority. Uh, and we have, uh, you know, uh, uh, over um, uh, about, I think, 24 agreements that we are currently uh, enforcing. And there's a, um, this is really intensive work. We've got open investigations in Louisville and Minneapolis, among others. Uh, we've, I think, opened seven in this, in this administration. We also have our criminal enforcement authority and we have an open pending criminal investigation into, uh, into the events surrounding Tyree Nichols' death, which is why I can't speak about it in any detail. But beyond that, uh, you know, look, it's a country of 18,000 police departments. And the ways in which we have the broadest reach uh, at the department is really through the funding and through the technical assistance and research that we do that fuels the, the, fuels the field. We are funding de-escalation training and crisis intervention teams and mental health co-response programs all over the country. We are helping to change the way that we are dealing with substance use disorders and mental health issues. We have collaborative reform initiatives that we've now been able to fund at much greater levels where police chiefs and mayors know they have problem issues in their departments and can call on us uh, to come in and work with them uh, to make those, to, to find out what the sources of the problems are and how to rebuild trust between law enforcement agencies and the communities through reforms. Uh, we have a lot of research uh, and technical assistance. And so this is all part and parcel of the broad array of tools that we have. And as, as was mentioned in the introduction, when President Biden signed the executive order in May, there were about over 90 deliverables for the Justice Department. And they range from everything from a focus on retention, recruitment, and hiring of officers to the establishment of a national law enforcement accountability database, which would include information about officers' convictions, terminations, sustained complaints, et cetera. This is a database that was supported by law enforcement and civil rights groups really to be able to empower law enforcement hiring executives to know the backgrounds of the officers they may be bringing. This applies, the president's authority is of course limited to the federal government, and so it applies to federal law enforcement. Uh, state and local participation will be voluntary, uh, and we have in the executive order as well, an accreditation scheme and our grants that we give to really incentivize state and locals to participate until and unless Congress acts. Uh, and uh, passes uh, legislation that makes this mandatory for all police agencies. So I, I, I hear you on all the actions that the administration has has taken. Um, I hear you when you say that you know, progress has been made and that you were heartened by the fact that you know, there was almost nearly universal condemnation by law enforcement of what happened to Tyree Nichols. And yet, 
in a new Washington Post ABC News poll, um, it found that public confidence in police dropped after what happened to Tyree Nichols in Memphis. 60% of Americans are more doubtful that police officers are properly trained to avoid um, excessive force. What do you make of that? How can you turn public perception around? Look, I would be, I would have been shocked if it had been any other way. I mean, the, um, you know, the video was put up for the nation to see. And uh, in the aftermath of incidents like this, this is often a consequence uh, and the public starts to have a lot of questions. I think we are a right to have these questions, but I think importantly, it's law enforcement leaders, it's uh, command staff, it's rank and file, it's the police unions that need to be having these conversations. And I believe in many corners are having the right conversations about what is the culture in this department. It, it is hyper-local work that ultimately needs to happen. Look, the federal government has the tools that we do, but ultimately this breaks down into uh, important leadership at the local level to make the changes and to really evaluate. So there's been a, a big focus right now on specialized units, for example. Um, you know, Memphis had the Scorpion unit, uh, and uh, and the focus, I think, you know, it should. I think every police chief in America should be right now looking at what if they have specialized units. How what are the tactics those units are using? What's the accountability and data that's coming back to supervisors? to understand how officers are engaged in the field. Is that a roving unit that operates outside of the rules of the department? Uh, is it the type of strategy that, I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of specialized units, but for the kinds of hotspot uh, specialized units, is this the type of strategy that is actually bringing violent crime down? There have been a lot of scandals with these specialized units in cities around the country. And then when violent crime goes up, there's often a tendency to try to grapple at ways, obviously, to address and bring public safety. But, you know, is this is is the type of specialized unit that the Scorpion unit represented the answer or is it focused deterrence, which really focuses on uh, policing strategies that are looking at the people in communities that are engaged actively in violence and a much more kind of people centric with wraparound community mm -hmm. services, often with a lot of community input into public safety strategies. We've got to ask these questions and we can't just go incident to incident saying, oh, this could never happen again or this won't happen in my department. And that's why for me right now, um, we, the Justice Department, I've asked our team to look into providing guidance for police chiefs that really I think all across the country need to be conducting reviews of their units if they're using it and asking these really hard questions to make sure not just in words, but that something like this doesn't happen again. Well, let's let's talk about uh, the police chief uh, of uh, in Memphis, um, uh, police chief C.J. Davis. Uh, she's been credited with taking swift action uh, in the days that followed. She disbanded that police unit, the Scorpion unit that you've been you've been talking about. And Scorpion is an acronym for Street Crimes Operation to Restore Peace in Our Neighborhoods. Um, she fired the five officers. Um, she's putting seven more under investigation. Is what Chief Davis did a template for other jurisdictions to follow? I think it was really important that she showed uh, immediate leadership uh, and uh, and took things um, in hand and did not try to dismiss the gravity and severity of the acts. I obviously can't speak to the specifics here, but I think that it was really important 
that she understood immediately, you know, what, what this meant and what the gravity was. And so, you know, I, may, one may have a lot of questions about why she set up the Scorpion unit, unit uh, starting with its name. Uh, I think there's been such a focus among law enforcement re leadership, rightly so, about pushing forward a guardian mentality versus a warrior mentality. But I know that she is somebody who has uh, testified in Congress in support of police reform. Uh, I think that her leadership in the immediate aftermath of an incident like this really matters. It matters for the country. I thought it was incredibly important that the family that Tyree Nichols's uh, mother and stepfather called repeatedly for peace in the streets, but also for justice. And so I think there's a lot of uh, things to look at uh, that hopefully we don't just go incident to incident, but that there are lessons every single time that one of these awful tragedies happens and that we can learn from them both uh, as, as uh, at the Justice Department, as the police chief of, of a jurisdiction. But that's why we've got to be able to have these hard conversations afterwards and not push these things under the rug. Um, I have an audience question that gets to a bigger, a bigger issue that I don't think a lot of Americans realize, and that is about police recruitment. Police departments around the country are having a hard time recruiting uh, officers. And this question comes from Judith Karen in Massachusetts. How do communities select, train, retain qualified law enforcement candidates without lowering standards? Recent statistics indicate recruitment is getting much harder. Police officers in the United States receive less training than their European counterparts, and American civilians own 393 million guns. This is a complex and disturbing topic. So this honestly is the number one issue that uh, we hear about from our law enforcement partners. There is a nationwide crisis in recruitment and retention. And I have heard uniformly from police leaders that they absolutely do not want to lower standards in this moment, that that will take the profession back. Uh, and so that we, we are engaged uh, with them in creative ways to deal with this. Uh, thinking through uh, you know, everything from uh, recruitment at HBCUs and uh, incentives for people to uh, become police officers ways to, you know, the morale of officers and whether people see themselves uh, uh, as police officers in communities that may have experienced acts of law enforcement related um, violence or misconduct. We've got to address this at all levels, but we won't be able to address the recruitment and retention crisis in a silo. Uh, we've got to understand that police community trust is also a key component of people wanting to see themselves in law enforcement an incredibly challenging job. Uh, and, and, and so we've got to be able to provide these supports, but this is all, there's a lot of strategies at, 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 in play here. And I think the worst thing that we could do in this moment would be to lower standards. We've got to provide greater incentives for this. We want good people in policing. And I think the, the leaders that I have talked to in law enforcement are really committed to trying to get this right without lowering standards. Mm -hmm. You know, I want people to to get to know a little bit of, about you beyond you being Associate Attorney General of the United States. Uh, you were a young civil rights attorney when you broke open a case about a racist Texas police officer in Tulia, Texas in 2003. Here's video of, of that time. Uh, One-tenth of the black population in Tulia had been arrested on drug charges based solely on unsubstantiated testimony of
of one under, uh, undercover police officer, th this is that guy, with a history of disciplinary problems, uh, you helped free 35 wrongly convicted men and women. When you look back on that formative case in your career, what changes have you seen across policing? Oh, I have seen a lot of changes. Uh, you know, those cases, the exonerations happened in 2003, as you mentioned. And I think that we had uh, a real transformation in how people think about use of force and de-escalation after Ferguson. Uh, my time when I was heading up the Civil Rights Division, the amount of demand from community activists for transparency, for accountability, uh, I think that there's been uh, radical reformation around use of force, as I said, really an understanding that de-escalation has to be part and parcel core of any use of force policy in the country. I think the understanding of training and accountability that it cannot be that, and you know, the use of body-worn cameras has certainly helped with this, uh, bringing these kind of issues to people's living rooms and starting and sparking conversations about the role of fair policing in communities, I think has been a really important contribution. And that was really not in existence at the time that I was uh, representing uh, individuals in Tulia, Texas. So, you know, we didn't have that much information, a lot policing back then, there was a lot of, um, it really felt like a black box in a lot of ways. And I think there's been a real push. Are we where we need to be on these issues? No, we have a lot of work to do. Uh, it's work that the Justice Department is committed to, but I will say I have also felt like, and this is not just George, George, the George Floyd's murder, but also, as I said, for the last uh, for the last eight or so years, a real feeling from law enforcement that they cannot sit on the sidelines uh, and they have to be proactive about this. But it's got we've got to be looking at the culture of policing, looking at our public safety strategies. We cannot repeat the mistakes of the past. And so I'm heartened. But again, I am not. I'm heartened understanding that we have a great deal of work to do. I want to pick up on something you you mentioned, uh, and that is the, the body-worn cameras. And, you know, a lot of people hope that that would be a deterrent. But once again, in, in Memphis, um, we saw that they didn't quite work. The five officers um, were internally charged uh, in Memphis with violating the department's use of body-worn cameras, among other charges. If there are reforms in place, like um, the mandating of wearing body-worn cameras, but the police don't use them, how do you make officers comply? Well, the policies that exist around body-worn cameras and the actual implementation of them are critical to their success. And it's why it is important that there is monitoring of how officers are actually using and deploying body-worn cameras uh, are they being shut off at critical moments? Uh, and so it isn't enough to have the policy again. This is where it comes back to culture and training over and over again. But there also has to be monitoring and accountability and supervision uh, when these policies aren't implemented. And Jonathan, if you will, you know, I kind of forgot the big ticket item when you were asking me this question of what's changed since I was litigating Tulia. I think there's also been broader cultural change and recognition around uh, racial bias in our criminal justice system and a much bigger coalition, a right-left coalition uh, that I think really was a revolution in the states in the late 2000s and has continued to support criminal justice reform and to support evidence-based practices 
to look at the role and accountability of other social systems in our communities that need to come to play in protecting and keeping public safety. I say this all the time, but it is so true. We have placed so many social problems at the feet of law enforcement while kind of divesting from social supports and systems, jobs, healthcare, mental health care, substance use treatment. Uh, uh, and, and that is not going to bring us a comprehensive, holistic way of addressing community and public safety. And I, this is another issue where after George Floyd's murder, I saw so much alignment among the demands that were being made by people who were protesting and law enforcement as well. And I think that we are still in the middle of kind of realizing what that could really look like and how that would work in communities around the country. You know, um, Vanita, the Washington Post reported recently, and I'm going to read this direct quote, despite the intense push for police reform that swelled in 2020, police that year shot and killed 1,019 people, the highest annual number since the Post began tracking shootings. And just w with the number of people being shot by police across the country still increasing, does, the, the question is, does leaving reform to local officials work? What role can or should the federal government or the Department of Justice play? I always say there's no silver bullet on this, and it's going to take all of us in every strategy uh, that we can deploy. Uh, there is There are criminologists that are providing data to actually ensure there's a lack of real science in a lot of areas of policing, and we have to change that. Uh, and and so there, the research matters, the local efforts matter, uh, really understanding uh, you know, what is happening in, the, in local departments, policies, as I said, culture is local. Uh, but the federal government has an important role to play. We work with our state local law enforcement partners every day uh, in, to fight violent crime. But we are also here at the Justice Department. We, we keenly understand that we cannot do that without police community trust and that we have to also practice what we preach here in the federal government. And so that's why we are bringing all of the strategies we have to bear, whether it's civil rights enforcement or uh, through our funding and incentives and technical assistance working with state and locals. I think the other thing that we can do is have convening power and use our bully pulpit to ask some of the hard questions and to work with chiefs that are asking those hard questions that are trying to turn things around or that where we are uplifting some of the great work that is happening in policing right now, where we've got innovation, we have incredible models in communities around the country. How can the Justice Department lift those up We've had a lot of communities where uh, use of force has actually gone down and crime rates have gone down. And I don't think the media is talking about that enough. There's a lot of good things that are happening in policing that we need to be able to lift up, lest we leave people with despair, feeling like there are no answers. Our communities need public safety. We can't have public safety without fair policing. Let me switch gears for a minute in the little bit of time that we have left. There is this Texas lawsuit that's trying to outlaw the abortion pill nationwide. Legal experts have said that the arguments are rooted in baseless and debunked arguments. But you chair the DOJ's reproductive task force. How concerned are you about this lawsuit? Uh, we are concerned about this lawsuit. We are vigorously defending the Food and Drug Administration and unprecedented litigation that is seeking to withdraw Mifepristone from the marketplace uh, it's a challenge to the FDA's actions from over uh, 22 years ago. 
Uh, and this is an action that would work severe harm to all of those who depend on this type of access. This is uh, our litigation in defense. We are vigorously defending this. And the Reproductive Rights Task Force is hard at work. We've got 12 different components of the Justice Department that meet almost daily to talk about how can we use all of the levers that we have to protect a reproductive health care access in a post-Dobbs world. And we will not hesitate to act where we find violations of federal law. Benita, we have just a couple minutes left, and I want to end on this. In the intro video, we heard um, people in Memphis, um, Tyree Nichols' family um, being part of a chance uh, where people saying, justice for who? Tyree Nichols. And I'm wondering, um, what do you think justice for Tyree Nichols looks like? Well, I would just uh, invoke what I heard from Tyree Nichols' own family, which is that justice looks like uh, what happened to Tyree Nichols never happening again. And that is their mandate to all of us. Uh, and I think it is an incredibly important mandate. Uh, I, it would be a mistake in these moments to just throw our hands up and to say, oh, nothing is ever going to change and nothing is changing. Because I do think there has been some progress. Uh, and I think that it has come because people have refused to just accept the status quo and people who understand how important it is to have fair policing to be able to live in safe communities. And so this work is going to be ongoing uh, and we're going to keep at it uh, and we're going to bring every strategy that we can to, to bear uh, to address some of these, uh, these issues. But I do think that it is important that, frankly, that we are even having this conversation. I don't know how many of these types of conversations were happening back when I was litigating in Tulia in 2003. I, I tried desperately to get the media to care about what was happening in uh, the criminal justice system in Texas and in Tulia in particular, but to understand some of these systemic issues and to continue to put them uh, on the front page of the media and to continue for all of us to engage in thinking about what is going to make a difference and how can we change from where we are today to do better. Uh, and that's why I'm grateful that you asked me to come on and I hope that you will continue to have a focus on these critical issues uh, that are so important for all of our communities in this country. You know, I have to agree with you, Vanita. You know, I was a, uh, a reporter 20 years ago um, and, you know, the, the conversation that this nation is having when it comes to law enforcement, uh, police-involved shootings of, of unarmed African-Americans is light years away from what it was 20 years ago. Vinita Gupta, Associate Attorney General of the United States, thank you very much for coming back to Washington Post Live. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.